You're listening to Black Op Radio. Video computers online. Archiving 44K. Welcome to another episode of Black Op Radio. In this segment, we're speaking to author Jerry Simone, who has authored a article on Kennedys and King. It is a narrative debunked. First of all, welcome to the show, Jerry. Thank you for having me, Lynn. Very good. Always interested in talking to people who are doing research uh, in the JFK assassination and to see what they found. And, and you know, it's, it's always something new. There's always something new, and uh, because the case isn't solved, it's not just there. It's like people are still digging up, uh, looking for leads. Now, um, just before we get into your article about Mexico City, do you want to give me just a brief background of what got you interested in the assassination and then to write? Uh, well, the um, my interest in the assassination uh, probably stemmed from the 80s. Uh, there were a couple of friends who were also interested in the topic. We were always uh, doubters of the Warren Commission and their work. One of my friend uh, mentioned a gentleman by the name of Tony Senta, who passed away in November of 2020, but he had an actual eight millimeter copy of the Zapruder film that he presented to the public and also did a slideshow presentation of the case. So we saw his show. We attended several of them. We became friends with Tony. And then my interest uh, evolved from there. You know, I read all the various books on the, on the subject. And then further, I, I, my first trip to Dallas was in 2003 with uh, one of those friends. After that time, I started attending the conferences, the JFK Lancer Conference and so my interest grew from there. And then with uh, the internet and social media, I started participating on uh, discussion boards. Uh, I think one of the first ones was the news group by uh, John McAdams, uh, the late John McAdams. He uh, was more of a, a Warren Commission defender, but the people that I encountered on his news group uh, were from all backgrounds and uh, from both sides of the debate. And so that enriched my, uh, my knowledge. And then after that, uh, you have other social media sites, Facebook, Quora, YouTube, 
So that's how I got into um, answering questions and participating in uh, those um, discussion boards. Yeah, I belonged to a few forums back then, and uh, that is a while ago. Yeah. And, and yeah, that's where you posted something and you waited for somebody to reply to it. There wasn't any kind of instant messaging, but yeah, you learned a lot. You, <laughs> when you said John McAdams, I was just going, oh my God, right? Yeah, exactly. McAdams. Uh, and, and some of the... Uh, the names of the participants there. Some of the guys are, are still around and, you know, whether it's Twitter or Facebook discussion groups, but that was, that was quite the distraction. Let's put it that way. But, you know, with the file releases over the years, there was just more information to draw upon and it just became more evident that the conspiracy um, was, was more proven if I can use that word, or substantiated. Now, is there something about the, I usually ask people this, about the JFK assassination that um, was a catalyst when you did some research or saw the movie JFK, there's some tidbit of something happened that really got you going. And I usually preface this, for me, it was Commission Exhibit 399. When I, you heard all the stuff and you see that bullet and you go, no, no, I don't care who did it. That bullet didn't do anything. And that got my interest into looking further. That was one of the uh, issues of the case. The other thing that got me going was uh, David, uh, the late David Lifton's uh, book, Best Evidence, about the autopsy, uh, raising questions about the autopsy and the possibility of a pre-autopsy, which seems to have been further or subsequently confirmed by the work of Doug Horn with the Assassination Records and Review Board. So that was another catalyst, if you will. And then, of course, there's many other smaller issues besides the uh, the single bullet, the questions about the autopsy and what the witnesses saw and what the Parkland doctors saw, that is a, a wound to the back of the head. But things like the Tippett murder, the trip to Mexico City, things like that. And then we come to the enigma of Mexico City, where the Warren Commission said he was there to spread his communist roots and go to the Russian uh, consulate or uh, Cuban consulate or, uh, you know, wherever the places were that he was supposed to be there. I think a lot of researchers have doubts that he was there. They never showed pictures of him. Yet they have kind of a paper trail that's saying, look, he's meeting with, uh, you know, Mexico City, the hotbed of of intrigue. So. Yeah, Mexico, uh, some say it's a Rosetta Stone. It's it's one of the more complex areas of the case. I wouldn't uh, describe myself as an expert on Mexico City, but the reason why I wrote the uh, the article on Kennedys and King and and brought it to uh, Jim's attention was I was um, browsing the Internet, on the subject of Mexico City, and I stumbled upon an article. It's called The Conversation. It's an online um, magazine, if you will. And they showed pictures of the infamous mystery person seen outside the Soviet um, consulate. And I thought, well, maybe they've shed more light on this um, person. And I began reading this um, article by Professor Gonzalo Soltero of the uh, National Autonomous University in uh, Mexico, who's a professor of narratives, conspiracy narratives. And he started off the article 
with, to me, was an unfounded statement that most conspiracy theories surrounding President John F. Kennedy's assassination have been disproven. So once I read that, I thought, okay, I could see a tone that is being set here. And I had to keep on reading. And that's how I got to, uh, I, you know, I wanted to, uh, br- I brought this to the attention of uh, James Eugenio. He asked if I wanted to give it a crack because I thought that that statement alone was enough to uh, counter. But there was some information in his online article that I had not been uh, aware of, and I dug, uh, and I dug further. Well, uh, let's get into the article then. Okay. Well, the, uh, the article by uh, Professor Gonzalo, Gonzalo Saltero he talks about a journalist named Oscar Contreras Lartigue, who claims to have met Oswald, claims to have met uh, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald in Mexico City. He says that Oswald approached him and some students, was looking for a way to uh, get a, a visa to Cuba. He was asking for uh, assistance. Uh, he met up with uh, certain students and, and stayed with them. So Professor Saltero read about Oscar Contreras' story telling in 1967. He um, Okay, well, Oscar Contreras told a gentleman by the name of Benjamin Ruhl, who was buying drinks for local journalists, that he met Oswald in 63 while he was a student at the um, Autonomous University. And he said that he belonged to a pro-Castro group, and Oswald sought help in getting a Cuban visa. And because Contreras was pro-Castro and had been involved in some nefarious political activities, he was afraid to talk much more. And he he also mentioned to Benjamin Rule that he told his editor about his encounter with Lee Harvey Oswald. The CIA visited Mexico City to talk to Contreras, but he refused to go into details, except to say that Oswald never mentioned assassination, only a need to get to Cuba. But because of his uh, political activities, he was not very vocal. He didn't really talk too much about it. In 1978, the House Select Committee on Assassinations, Dan Hardaway, went to Mexico. He wanted to interview Contreras, but he um, he was un- unable to uh, contact him. Actually, Dan Hardaway says that the CIA prevented the House Select Committee from interviewing Oscar Contreras. And there's a link in my um, essay that uh, refers to um, Dan Hardaway's essay. Another uh, reporter, Philip Sheenan, who uh, wrote a a book on the assassination in 2013, interviewed Contreras, who he said was more forthcoming and told him about uh, far more extensive contacts between Oswald and Cuban agents in Mexico. But Contreras, um, and he found him credible. And Dan Hardaway, by the way, also thought that Contreras' account shouldn't be dismissed. Now, in 2016, Oscar Contreras passed away. So Professor Soltero couldn't interview him. But he, he says that he remembered my, a minor detail of Contreras' account and that Contreras told his editor while a law student about his encounter with Oswald. Well, Soltero thought, how can he be a student and an editor? So he did some investigating. He went to uh, the um, archives of the uh, newspaper in Tampico, El Sol du Tampico, 
and he found uh, two gossip columns, one dated September 22nd and the other on October 6, 1963, that Contreras wrote. That was his job. He, he wrote a gossip column. And he examined these two gossip columns and concluded that Contreras could not have been in Mexico City during the time that Oswald was there, because Tampico is some 300 miles away. So he concluded that Contreras' account of meeting Oswald was a, a fabrication and that any conspiracy theory arising therefrom associating Oswald with pro-Castro Mexicans or Cuban agents is debunked. Now, I thought if those gossip columns were dated one week before and after the weekend of Oswald's visit to Mexico City, which was between September 27th and October 2nd, 1963, how could Soltero make such a conclusion? So uh, now the uh, the online article from the uh, on the conversation was in English, but the um, the Cresol gossip columns that he claims prove that Contreras had to have been in Tampico covering these um, social events uh, were in Spanish. So I couldn't use a translation app. What I had to do was uh, contact a, a translator. Fortunately for me, a metal gentleman who runs a translation service in Mexico. And uh, he also shares an interest in this part of history. And what he found out was that Contreras, in his gossip columns, does not admit to personally attending or even um, imply his attendance to any events mentioned in those gossip columns, but only describes what those events are, some of which occurred in the past, um, some of which will occur in the future. But no events take place on Friday, September 27th, or during the weekend, or Monday, September 30th, or Tuesday, October 1st, when Oswald was supposedly in Mexico City. So uh, the absence of a social event in Tampico, Mexico, during the time that Oswald supposedly visited Mexico City, September 27th to October 2nd, couldn't prevent Oscar Contreras from being in Mexico City. And uh, uh, furthermore, even if there was an event, a social event during that crucial period, why couldn't Contreras arrange for a proxy to cover his story? So it appears that the basis for uh, Mr. Saltero's uh, repudiation of Oscar Contreras's account is unfounded. It's convenient to say that to discredit Contreras since he's not around to defend himself. But uh, as pointed out, those sold the Tampico articles, which are reproduced, I believe, on the, um, I'm not sure if they're reproduced on the Kennedy and King website, but they are included in the, uh, you can see them in the conversation article, which is linked on my essay on the Kennedy and King website. They don't discredit Contreras's account. And, and there's details uh, as to the specific events and why they don't discredit uh, his account of, of being in Mexico City during that uh, crucial time. Now, Professor Saltero refers to uh, Contreras' account as a, as a main conspiracy about Oswald's undocumented time in Mexico City. But when I saw that, I thought, well, I don't think it's a main conspiracy because I could think of a few bigger ones, namely that uh, one Oswald met with uh, or allegedly met with a Soviet diplomat named Valery Kostikov who uh, the CIA suspected of being attached to the KGB's Department 13 in charge of assassinations, terrorism, and sabotage. And now, when he met with Kostikov, the reason was to apply for a visa to get to the Soviet Union via, via Cuba. 
So the, the insinuation was uh, to seek asylum after the assassination, but after conferring with the, the Cold War enemy at the time. And the other main conspiracy is um, about the one that Oswald was offered a large sum of money by pro-Castro Cubans at the Cuban consulate. And, and that was the, uh, the case of a, um, he was a, um, a penetration agent of the uh, right-wing Somoza government of Nicaragua by the name of Gilberto Alvarado Ugarte. But he was also a CIA informant. And the basic story there is that on September 18th, he says he witnessed a Cuban give Oswald a total of $6,500, presumably to hire uh, him to kill the president. And he claims to have heard Oswald say to the Cuban, you're not man enough, I can do it. Uh, the, the only problem with that story is Oswald was not in Mexico on that date, and Alvarado later failed a polygraph test. Uh, but there's, in, there's even a, a third main conspiracy that Lee Harvey Oswald was impersonated in Mexico City uh, to attract attention to himself with his uh, public behavior uh, in order to uh, incriminate him uh, by his contact with Cubans and Soviets there. And uh, to use that association during the Cold War to uh, possibly effect a retaliatory response by the U.S. against Cuba or the Soviets, based on what happens on November the 22nd. And then a related conspiracy is that someone or persons in U.S. intelligence were manipulating Oswald with their knowledge of the CIA surveillance of the Cuban consulate and Soviet embassy. The cases of, of uh, identification of Oswald by um, those in Mexico, starting with uh, Eusebio Azcu, who was uh, a consul official in the Cuban embassy. He said that the uh, testified that the man who applied for the in-transit visa to the Soviet Union was not the one who was identified as Lee Harvey Oswald, the alleged assassin of President Kennedy on November the 22nd. This is the same for Sylvia Duran, who also worked there, described the man in question as dark blonde or blonde hair and short. Interestingly enough, Oscar Contreras even described the person who introduced himself as Oswald as blonde and short. When Anthony Summers spoke to Oscar Contreras, who said he met a blonde American calling himself Oswald, he told Summers that uh, he doubts the man really was Oswald and that he said the guy was over 30, light-haired, and fairly short. Contreras was not very tall himself. He says he remembers looking down on Oswald. He made a joke about it with fellow students. So the descriptions of Oswald don't match the Oswald that was arrested in Dallas. And then there's the case of um, phone calls to the um, Soviet consulate, which were wiretapped by the uh, CIA. The person who spoke did so in broken Russian when Oswald was fluent in Russian. And also the uh, description of the man leaving and, and entering the Soviet embassy. Again, 35, athletic build, six feet, receding hairline and balding top. Didn't match Lee Harvey Oswald's description since he was shorter and slimmer. J. Edgar Hoover also spoke about this, uh, his agents uh, to LBJ that um, his agents heard a tape and, and, and saw pictures, but neither the voice or the recording uh, on the recording, nor the man on the photographs matched Lee Harvey Oswald. So th this impersonation in, uh, in Mexico was another uh, flag, another indication of um, uh, some um, uh, conspiracy to uh, 
uh, incriminate Oswald or set him up as a patsy. CIA and FBI, they try to backpedal, saying that uh, it was a transcript. It wasn't a tape recording. But, you know, documented testimony says that they, they heard a tape and saw a photo. So unlikely you can confuse that with a transcript. And there are other instances of double Oswalds. In Dallas on September the 25th, if not the 26th, uh, a Sylvia Odio confronted uh, an Oswald imposter, uh, someone who said he was Oswald, Leon Oswald, I believe. But Oswald had to, um, supposedly Oswald cashed a check in New Orleans on that day that he supposedly was in Dallas and on his way to Mexico. There was a, um, a December 2nd, 1963 report by Secret Service agent Floyd Boring that a credible witness encountered an Oswald lookalike in Washington on September 27th. But the Warren Commission was adamant that Oswald was in Mexico City on that date. And then, of course, there's a, um, a 1960 memo by J. Edgar Hoover to the State Department warning there's a possibility that an imposter is using Oswald's birth certificate. So... I believe the latter three conspiracy theories far outweigh uh, the one involving uh, Oscar Contreras. And to me, it's, it's a, um, an incidental story that is used to discredit other uh, accounts of conspiracy, especially the blanket statement at the, um, at the beginning of the article that all uh, conspiracy theories have been disproven. The thing is, the importance of the of the impersonation of Oswald, or or the account of Oswald meeting Valery Kostikov in um, Mexico City, is that it was used by LBJ to compel uh, Earl Warren and uh, Richard Russell to um, be involved in the Warren Commission. He used the threat of uh, World War III in order to promote the lone assassin scenario. And that was done with the creation of the Warren Report. That preempted any independent congressional investigation. Uh, so that's the significance of the accounts of uh, Oswald meeting um, Valeria Kostikov or the account of him uh, being bribed to uh, take out the president, which was later um, discredited when uh, that person failed the polygraph. But it was no doubt used by LBJ to... Um, for the creation of the lone uh, assassin uh, scenario. So, um, yeah, he used it against Judge Earl Warren, right? He Warren didn't want to be on it, and he was saying that you know there's going to be a third world war, and the logic escapes me. But if your adversary just killed your president, you'd think there would be retribution. But it's like he's saying, look, there's all this Mexico City stuff, another intrigue, and we just yeah, I don't um, uh, ev evident. President Johnson wasn't going to uh, start a, uh, a war. Uh, I believe he, um, because I believe Hoover uh, was aware of false stories by the CIA. I believe LBJ also wanted to prevent an inquiry, an objective inquiry that could open up a can of worms that would point to the CIA involved with their um, covert operations and trying to get rid of Cuba or uh, Castro. I think they uh, didn't want any of that to blow back as well. And so he was left, uh, the most viable choice was to uh, use the lone assassin scenario as a way to get out of this uh, quagmire. But uh, when I was looking, uh, uh, sometimes I referred to Soltero's book, 
And he doesn't mention the issue of, of the Oswald impersonator in his online article, but he does allude to it in his book. But he dismisses the, uh, the issue of impersonators in Mexico City as an espionage operation. Counter, as he puts it, counterintelligence impersonation, CIA assets pretending to be Oswald and Silvio Duran, getting caught in another espionage operation, which is telephone and photographic surveillance. And then the CIA had to cover its tracks to protect their own sources and operations, some of which were covert and perhaps illegal. This is what Mr. Soltero says. But um, personally, myself, I, I, I don't see how that could be an innocent explanation without considering the possibility that Oswald was being used in an intelligence operation as a dangle or an attempt to discredit the fair play for Cuba committee or both. And per Dan Hardaway, Hardaway also suggests that Oswald trip to Mexico was either designed in advance or spun in the aftermath to give the appearance of a Cuban and Soviet collusion in the Kennedy assassination. And then we can't forget the conditions ripe to set up a scapegoat, the Patsy in Dallas, a Patsy who is an opponent of Castro to Silvio Odio in Dallas, but pro Castro in Mexico City, um, which which is really um eye-opening, where, you know, Oswald acted one way to Silvio Odio, because he was hanging out with anti-Castroites, but he's pro-Castro in Mexico City, wanting to show to uh, Silvio Duran his his fair play for Cuba committee uh, credentials, his Russian uh, passport, insisting that he wants to go to the Soviet Union, um, his membership to the Communist Party. Uh, so, you wonder why doesn't this inconsistency raise a red flag to uh, uh, Professor Soltero? It doesn't. He just concludes that Oswald was a disorganized loner who couldn't handle travel logistics. But we know that Oswald successfully managed a trip to the Soviet Union, purportedly as a defector during the Cold War, and returns to the U.S. The US with hardly a hassle, barely debriefed if, if he was. Soltero says that the JFK assassination is a cold case and that only exhausted leads remain in Mexico. Well, I agree that it is a cold case, but not the latter, especially since uh, the CIA resisted the House Select Committee's on Assassinations inquiry into that area of their investigation. And then uh, not to mention the, uh, the delay on the release of classified files relating to this case, which continues to this very day. One point I didn't mention earlier was that uh, Contreras was warned by Cuban consular staff and an intelligence officer to avoid Oswald as they suspected he was trying to infiltrate pro-Castro groups. And this is what uh, supposedly um, Oswald was doing even in um, New Orleans, trying to infiltrate, attract attention to himself, uh, uh, passing out uh, leaflets, for the Fair Play for Cuba committee, being used to as a as a to provoke, uh, he was an agent provocateur. With respect to the um, Oswald um, suspected of being a, a, an agent provocateur, the Church Committee discovered an FBI memo dated September 18th, wherein the CIA advised the FBI on September the 16th, 1963, of giving consideration to countering activities of the FPCC in foreign countries, which Oswald did nine days later 
as in Mexico City. Is it a coincidence? I don't think so. In James Diogenio's uh, latest book, The JFK Assassination, The Evidence Today, he, he states that the best evidence of a large conspiracy for this event occurs in Chicago and Mexico City, which happened in tandem right before the assassination. But that's another story, Chicago. <laughs> yeah, well, what I was thinking, though, is that when you talk about an ancient provocateur or this, uh, you know, footprints, this sheep dipping, is that can you imagine if uh, we find out that Lee Oswald was driven by Tippett or something, you know, over to the Redbird Field and he got on a plane and Ferry flew him to Cuba? And then they would say, oh, he met with Kostikov, he met with Russians, and Cuba and Russia are together with this, and now he made it. That would have given, you know, Alan Dulles and everybody else that wanted to nuke Cuba, take it off the map, carte blanche, just to go after him. Exactly. Yeah. It's interesting to note that the liaison with the House Select Committee, George Joannidis, at the time was unbeknownst to the House Select Committee, they only found out years later that he was involved in uh, psychological operations in Miami and that his group funded uh, an anti-Castro group and had contact with Oswald. And yet here he is being a liaison with the um, House Select Committee on Assassinations for the CIA. And so information was, um, was not shared, was withheld. And obviously, it would have shed light on uh, Oswald sheep dipping and preparations to uh, basically uh, to create propaganda to uh, incite a war or action by uh, the U.S. government. I did want to conclude uh, at the end of uh, Contreras' article, he also says that uh, conspiracy theories offer assurances of depth and closure, a promise that the biggest enigma of the 20th century is solvable. But the critics of the Warren Commission or researchers involved in this case, they're not concerned with narrativity or telling a good story. And Professor Saltero, he does talk about various conspiracies south of the border, uh, dealing with uh, drug cartels and, and, you know, criminal organizations. One chapter just devoted to uh, Oswald and the trip to Mexico. But the critics uh, or the researchers, are they're not concerned with narrativity or telling a good story, but they're there to ascertain the facts and follow them to reach definitive evidentiary-based conclusions if not just to establish reasonable doubt. As I mentioned in my article, six out of seven mock trials resulted in either a um, hung jury or an acquittal in favor of Lee Harvey Oswald, meaning the evidence against him is, is flawed or that there's reasonable doubt. It's not about paranoia, but a quest for justice and the truth. That's why the files need to be uh, released. Well, you know, it's in the public interest. Like, for instance, I'm not sure about how justice will ever be served, but for those who have an interest in the truth, you say as a historian, what happened? What really happened? And if you care about that, you care about it. Well, if you want to keep it from happening again, if it's the CIA, an off-the-shelf type thing where they just decided to remove president, you know, you hear about it happening in, in foreign encounters all the time. And here, the CIA has turned its guns on its own president and said, this guy's got to go. You know, so just the fact that they have been fighting for 60 years is why uh, 
a few journalists have finally said the CIA killed him. The CIA did it. They organized the cover-up. They, they, they handled everything. And I think that's why sometimes some researchers are not so concerned about who his actual gunmen were, should there, should there end up being three of them. You know, they just, whoever the gunman was, was somebody hired, you know, uh, a mechanic for that job, right? But, um, you know, we want to keep it from happening again. Right. I, I, I should mention this, that despite the bias in, in the online article, by Gonzalo Soltero, it does acknowledge the existence of conspiracies in his book, Conspiracy Narratives South of the Border, which contains some statements at odds with the rather blanket denial at the beginning of his online article. He says, conspiracies are planned and executed, and evil squadrons do exist. And that the DFS, the I believe the Mexican uh, Secret Service or uh, uh, their intelligence agency, were bad hombres. He also states that DFS agents were the local muscle for the CIA because the DFS agents were the ones who interrogated uh, Sylvia Duran, tried to get her to stay, uh, change her story, and they did it with uh, impunity. And he states that the agency, in brackets CIA, ran assassination and sabotage missions against other countries. And this is in his book. So he, he does acknowledge the existence of conspiracies, and yet they don't occur in his uh, analysis of Oscar Contreras' account or uh, the case with Oswald south of the border. So I just thought that was at odds. But yes, the truth, uh, the whole point of uh, releasing the files is to give the full disclosure and to... Um, so that the truth uh, comes out. Well, it exposes the fallacy of the Justice Department or FBI or Warren Committee, any, you know, any government agency that is in charged with investigating this. And it's a total fraud. And so, exactly. when you, yeah, when you see the fraud that it is, you go, well, what are they covering up? Well, it doesn't even matter because you just realize they're covering it up. They're part of it. And even if it's accessories after the fact. Exactly. No, they're, they're, uh, I, and I believe that there were many that were following orders, many that uh, were uh, accessories uh, uh, after the fact, um, and 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 maybe were uh, intimidated to uh, keep quiet or j just uh, go with the flow. But the whole problem is that we still have a false history, and that's why I hope that uh, the Kappa organization can. Uh, make some headway in their lawsuit for the release of the uh, the rest of the uh, of the files because I doubt very much that after 60 years there's still identifiable harm to the national security of the United States if indeed Lee Harvey Oswald was a lone nut why the continued secrecy if he has no intelligence connections why the continued classification of files it, it just doesn't make sense well it it doesn't make sense if you wanted to believe the government but if you were to have been shown that, of course, uh, let's just say Alan Dulles and his cronies decided to remove Kennedy, then it makes all sense that they, they planned this out and there is somewhat of some paper trail and they've got to cover it up. Yes. You know, and so yeah. that that's how it makes sense when your own government or, you know. That's how it makes sense. Yeah, that's the that's the uh, the conclusion. I, well, I guess what I'm saying is it doesn't make sense that 
there's a need to withhold documents if the truth is a lone nut. It just, it, it, that doesn't jive. What makes sense is what you just stated, to prevent full disclosure and the truth from coming out. Okay, very good. So the conversation, that article was there and that Kennedy's the king, they have links on your article, HTML they, they Active. Yeah. And, and, and the interesting thing is the conversation article was replicated in other online magazines, if you will, which is why I said that it replicated on other online news sites faster than the coronavirus. And so uh, I just thought, wow, this this is a um, this is a um, uh, a form of uh, propaganda to diminish work of, of researchers and 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 the case for conspiracy. I didn't get into the a discussion of the publisher of the book, but it's interesting to note that some of their other publications are um, by, um, I would say, authors that are for hire, friendly, <laughs> friendly, friendly to the Warren Commission. Uh, yeah, story. And and so that's that's another discussion altogether. But there's a word for that, prostitute. Yeah, right. <laughs> But yes, the it's it's um, it's it's just remarkable how uh, you see. Um, I mean, that's why independent news is important because mainstream doesn't cover this. And just like uh, you cover it on your um, podcast, and that, and that's why I, I think it's important that uh, other outlets should be supported. Right. Well, at Kennedy's and King, they try to find articles that uh, are are worth reading. And as opposed to so many that are just propaganda, not worth it. And so people can read your review of that article, which is, you know, just, I, I think anybody who reads this won't probably even goes, goes back to read the, uh, the conversation article. And like you said, it was like picked up and flagged and waved like a flag. Oh, look at the people doing this research are crackpots and, you know, everybody go back to sleep. For anybody who looks into it further, it, it, there's just so much more to it. And it, 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 in it, like you say, just imagine how Lee Oswald got, he, he got a loan to come back and he was met, right? What was the guy's name? Was it Spaz T. Rakin who, who met him back, you know? So, right. you know, something was up with Lee Oswald, you know, just thought he was on duty the whole time. And, you know, and uh, you can hear him in that interview conversation, carte blanche, right? Where he says, well, what were you doing in Russia? He goes, well, I was under the protection of the U.S. I mean... That was not to say I was under the protection, right. but you know uh, they knew exactly where I was, yeah. and he he was on he was on a mission, you know, and that mission was to investigate the Soviet Union, and uh, then he came back, and if he right. wasn't debriefed, I mean it just doesn't make sense, and he was allowed to bring back a wife, you know, he just right. like, oh okay, you know, and then you look into like, well who was she, right? So mm. yeah, there's just just more to it, so. You know, for anybody who spends time trying to, um, I don't like the word debunked, it's like crazy, you know, but, you know, you know, you're doing research on something. What happened to President Kennedy? He was murdered. Was there a proper investigation? And then when you look into it, no, there wasn't a proper investigation. There was a cover-up. Absolutely. There's two, there's two aspects of it. There's the murder conspiracy and the cover-up. And the cover-up, I, I always say that the maybe only at the most secret point is there an overlap between the conspiracy murder conspiracy and the cover-up because things had to be on a need-to-know basis i mean in in uh, some of the pop culture uh even in the film jfk 
where Ferry says, the shooters don't even know. <laughs> and and uh, they probably don't want to know, <laughs> but need to know basis. And, and yet there, there's probably a, uh, a an overlap where you have the cover-up and the murder conspiracy. And, and uh, that's obviously at a higher up level. But um, um, definitely um, certain... Um, rogue elements that that had uh, um, substantial, uh, in my mind, operational responsibilities. So they had the means. And then perhaps um, those in industry who had the means to finance it. But I just hope I'm around to, uh, to learn more about this in the coming years and hopefully sooner than later. Yeah, it is surprising, though, what people are able to piece together because as they slowly release some materials and some documents, people are going through them with, like, you know, Malcolm Blunt and, and others that are proving that says this completely shatters the Warren Report. Although you may not get a memo that, um, you know, Alan Dulles signed a team to these guys and here's their payroll and here's their holiday pay and whatever, you know, you won't find that. But you will find out that everything about the government story is a fraud. And I feel sorry for people who believe Commission Exhibit 399. I mean, it's just, you know, it's not even <laughs> science fiction, but it's just, it's such a joke and an insult that if you want to say, listen, Kennedy was removed by his enemies, and here's an investigation of who his powerful enemies were, and you, you follow that, and, you know, people have a, a discussion about it. But for the blanket denial that, no, Lee Oswald did it, and... Geez, I think it was just a year or two ago that somebody, a surviving member of the Ward Commission, they put like a dog and pony show together and they, they, they had a documentary and they went around touring with it to, to say that, you know, we had it right. Uh-huh. And, you know, it's just pathetic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I don't know, was it Howard Willens? Wylands? Uh, sure. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure either because oh, I just had, know, you, know, you know, interest, you know, it's like, what a waste of your life. You, you're kidding me, right? Yeah, I, I never bought it. Like I said, I had some close friends who, one's uh, an engineer, and and just never bought it, you know. And e- even if even if the Zapruder film might have been altered to some degree, I don't think wholesale, it still shows evidence of a frontal shot, you know. Uh, so you know that's one of the critical pieces of evidence. And and like I said at the beginning, Tony Santa he would put it on the projector and it was narrated and i believe he got his copy from the late pen jones who probably got it from the garrison trial where they made special, several copies but tony Santa told me a story that when he crossed the border from the united states he had the film tucked in his shirt pocket inside a cigarette <laughs> box because he was afraid you know, he's, he was just afraid to carry it, and and uh, but but he was he was um, he went around the city. He he showed it to uh, judges, police associations, and then uh, uh, high schools. And if you read his obituary, uh, some of his students were. Everybody has a memory of him. He was an industrial arts teacher, but they had a memory of him talk about the assassination and, and his presentation. And everybody has fond memories. And and uh, uh, so and I think that was probably the the big thing, just watching the film as a film as opposed to online. 
Well, you know, the, the thing also is that with talk shows and people talking about, you know, what happened in Dallas and when in 64, when the report comes out, I had heard this from somebody, you know, maybe it was Penn Jones Jr., but the people were calling in and talking about it. I said, how can you get shot from the back, from the front? We were there and, there, you know, so many people saw him get shot in the front. And now yeah. they say that Lee Oswald from the sixth floor window, you know, you know, it, it was, uh, you know, one of those things when you see that, America lost faith in their government, and uh, you know people and universities. Yeah. yeah, when the yeah. Mark Lane was going to universities to show the film and that, and then have debates, and then people were dropping out and saying, you know, I'm no longer supporting this. And then there's the Vietnam War, and they go, "What the hell are we doing in Vietnam?" You know, right, 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 and and uh, uh, you know, it was um, President's Day today. There was a few things shared on. Um, social media and and um of course some of them included jfk and what would have been what would have been uh, i think things would have been a lot different but we'll never know we'll never know well thank you for uh doing this review it saved me of having my to pleasure. stumble across the article and and having my uh stomach turned <laughs> but Thank uh you know what you, what, for the you, opportunity Len. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've, this is my first uh, podcast and it's it takes some preparation and work but it's well worth it good now just before we wrap up is there anything else you wanted to bring up on this right or even any other topic is there anything that i didn't get to or that you actually wanted to talk about um no uh just that i'm i'm still um um i still look at other um um, aspects of the uh, assassination, you know, on social media, Facebook groups, people will ask questions, especially on Quora, they'll ask questions that some of them are obvious, there's obvious answers, and some of them uh, not so obvious, and, and you have to go into detail. So I, um, uh, I just, uh, I, I address, uh, I, I don't specialize in any one area. So I, I uh, if I find something that's interesting, whether it's it involves a single bullet theory or other issues, uh, uh, you know, JFK's foreign policy. That's an important area that uh, Jim Diogenio has presented on or uh, other uh, minutiae of the uh, assassination. I write about it as I uh, address it. But it seems like there's something every week that I'll see on social media. And there are still many who who um, are Warren Commission defenders that are out there so uh um yeah well there's a payroll for them so that's yeah why you know what it's 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 uh, i i i'm it just boggles the mind it boggles the mind uh and i and, and when you hear the uh the, the the twitter files that were released by you know elon musk and he gave them to matt taibbi and that mm -hmm. and you find out there's a there's a wing there that the fbi is funding 3.4 million dollars for them to be censoring thing. i mean it, the fbi has millions of dollars to throw into that well so you just know that there's other money and slush funds to keep these guys that you would think are well i'll just leave it alone i'll leave it alone <laughs> yeah. yeah i when i these people that are warren commission supporters you just laugh i wonder how they had the logic to get a driver's license and then if, <laughs> and then if you think there is no logic then you think you know okay they're they're on some agenda, and they must be paid for their spending their time 
It's limitless. Yeah, uh, it it makes me, um, especially if they've written a book on it or two, like... Yeah, you don't even have to mention his name. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Um, But anyhow. You know, you you already said McAdams, and that was (laughs) my quota, one for for show. Do do you know what? He He was respectful with me. There was another guy there who was more harsh with me, but he was okay because sometimes I came across things that would support his side. But then again, there's an interesting story if you ever have the time to look into, and and that's a story by um, the Canadian journalist who started the uh, Toronto Sun, Peter Worthington. And Peter Worthington was there when Jack Ruby shot Oswald. He is there. There's a video, there's photos of him, and then he later covered the trial of Jack Ruby. And he would write about the assassination. He didn't believe in a a conspiracy, but he always wondered, why are they holding all these files secret still? And he he claims that he just walked down that ramp. And he said to him, and and he said, I must have looked like a G-man. You know, and it was by fluke that he went down that morning because Oswald was supposed to come out at four, four o'clock, but he wanted to check the lay of the land. And he beat the Toronto Star journalist who was still in bed, who slept in, and they suspended him without pay, the Toronto Star journalist, for two weeks. And and because uh, Peter Worthington from the Toronto Telegram got the story, but uh, that's another fascinating account. So I, I remember mentioning that to McAdams. I go, well, here's a guy who says he just walked down the walked down the the, the ramp, but you know he. he but the like- thing is, these guys are disingenuous on the research. I mean, it's just. Well, I, I I could you know Peter Worthington. That's mainstream media. So no I no could- no. I mean McAdams. Oh, oh, God. Yeah, you know, uh, I mean, you know, you know I, 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 you know, to pull it mildly, I, um, I, I thought he was a, a very good spin artist. That's, that's how I'll put it. <laughs> but yeah. All right. But anyway. Okay. Jerry, well, maybe there'll be another time. And yes. um, thank you. Thank for you. For now. And we'll stay good. in touch. All right. All thank right. you very much for your time. Have a good tonight. night, Glenn. Okay. Take care. Okay. Bye bye. Thanks for the opportunity. You're listening to Black Op Radio. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Black Op Radio. In this segment, we are speaking to Chad Nagel. He's got an article up at Kennedy's and King, and he's calling us from Tokyo. So, hello, Chad. Thank you for uh, making time for Black Op Radio today. Thank you, Len. Uh, It's very nice to be talking to you. Uh, Just a note, uh, my surname's pronounced Nagel. You pronounce it like Richard Case Nagel, perhaps. Oh, did I? Um, I'm sorry. Well, no, no, it's fine. Nagel. It's, it's, it's fine. It's absolutely fine. I'm very happy to be here. And as I say, I'm honored to be on a podcast that's had so many guests with an encyclopedic knowledge of the assassination which um, of President Kennedy, which which I unfortunately don't have. But uh, but I but it's it's of of enduring interest to me over the well, course you know, of the years. The interest is then you you look into the topic and then at arm's length, like what we're going to talk about tonight, there's so many other things that are new that are popping up and people have something to bring to the table. And you have a, an interesting article here and we'll get into it about Howard Willems. Um, but, you know, I, I'm always learning something new and I tell people you'd think that you they have found everything out, but they haven't. And and in the in you know in the murder case it's not really solved. So therefore, if you ask 
well, who did it and how did they do it? And then, uh, you know, you can get into that. But it's a real history lesson. And that's what I find of interest at Black Off Radio, that you'll hear interesting guests talking about, um, you know, their opinions and versions of, of what has come to light. I mean, there's still we're still talking and arguing about, well, documents be released. They're still withholding documents. So, you know, and then you go, well, what have they got to hide if they're holding documents back 60 years later? No, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And particularly now, I think there's a sense of activism uh, that's that's kind of resuscitated about JFK because of this strange um, political situation in the United States where we see this, you know, this overt polarization on a number of issues. And now legislators and committees are mulling over a series of issues that they want to conduct investigations or oversight of. Now, somehow JFK has entered the mix because, as you say, you know, 60 years, it's becoming ridiculous now. Um, and so, so there's, I think, renewed interest. And when you have someone like, you know, Tucker Carlson interviewing people and, and making sensational statements, I mean, this is someone with millions of viewers and whatever anyone thinks of, of his politics uh, you know, it's going to attract attention. And so so I, I'm rather encouraged because this has become very, you know, it, it is a fascinating subject, the, the assassination of President Kennedy, uh, quite apart from being, in my opinion, extremely important and perhaps more important than it's ever been to achieve, if not a, a totally clear resolution of what happened, uh, you know, who pulled the triggers, but rather... A, 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 a shift or a, a different trajectory for the official narrative. That's that's really what we're talking about, I think. And and what there, I, I believe, I'm optimistic that, that it's possible based on certain things that are happening at the moment. But um, I mean, in my own case, um, I came to the assassination very late. And in fact, when I, I went to the press conference in Washington of the Mary Farrell Foundation, and I met Rex Bradford and Jefferson Morley, and Lauren Schnapp, who's one of the co-counsels in the um, lawsuit that, that they've launched against the, the Biden administration and the National Archives to enforce the JFK Records Act. And, you know, I was talking to these fellows, they're very nice uh, guys, very good vibe. And I said, well, I, I, I began reading about the JFK assassination about 10 years ago. So, you know, I was saying that I'd come to it rather late, but it's becoming a, a snowball of interest. And then I, I went back and I said, well, when did I really start reading books about the JFK assassination? And I looked in my Amazon orders and it was actually November, 2017. And I knew that I'd read about 50 books and I tried to choose carefully. And I thought, well, why does it seem like such a long time? And why then? And I realized it coincided with President Trump's, he had just delayed release of the remaining withheld files. And so you tend to rationalize, you know, I don't remember what was going through my head, but I think that time really indicates that, you know, suggests very strongly that I was motivated to really read up seriously, because until that time, I'd been one of these JFK internet junkies, you know, watching videos and reading things and, you know, bits and pieces. But I, and I don't have an excuse, you know, as an American citizen for not being more serious about it. So, for example, in my article, I said that I only became aware that I had worked for a member of the Warren Commission in, in 2013, in the 50th anniversary. 
but I had first watched the Zapruder film in 2010. And so between 2010 and 2013, I was you know, literally one of these morbid, prurient um, sort of internet junkies interested in, I don't know, theories and, you know, uh, speculative things. But then between 2013 and 2017, what was my excuse after I realized I'd worked the Warren Commission uh, legal counsel, assistant uh, legal counsel. And I, you know, one of the things I can say about about lawyers, I think, uh, that, that we have in common once you've been through the factory of the American law school education system is that you come out the other end and you tend to look for solutions in laws. So, you know, it took until, you know, from 2013 to 2017, my solution was to say, well, what does the law say on this matter? And then the 2017 deadline became important. It's like, well, in 2017, we're going to actually get released these things that they're hanging on to very tightly. And then when that didn't happen, then it became time to develop some sort of expertise in this subject, which, as I say, was endlessly interesting. I mean, the, the authors on JFK, the good ones, should be, you know, among the top respected academics in in American history or in this this era of American history. But because of you know, American political culture and the incredible sort of traction and endurance that the Warren Commission version of that event has, they've basically been sort of marginalized. I mean, Skyhorse can publish these great books and you read them and you're like, wow, that that was amazing and so well researched. And yet, you know, there's a sense of, of marginalization. And I, I have to remain optimistic that that will be turned on its head because of the activism that's going on. But I think it's very, very important because um, if you know, it, it, among all of the, the suspect events that have happened in U.S. history and all of the truth-seeking panels that have been set up that have generated, you know, a public shrug of cynicism or, or mistrust, you know, and, and, and you know, we, we can name a litany of them. Most of them happened after the Warren Commission, which I think was a template for, you know, uh, these these public truth-seeking panels that don't convince, they don't lay things to rest, and they don't generate trust. And what's more, it, it, it was on an issue that had fundamental constitutional implications. And this is, again, the sort of the, you know, the, the, the lawyerly mind kicking into action. You, you have a you have a, an event with constitutional implications because a head of state, so one third of the federal power is removed. He's like more than a human because once he becomes president, he's the institution too. You remove that. And then if you don't accept the Warren Commission report, uh, that becomes some sort of tranquilizer. So somebody got away with something. And at that point, from that point onwards, we're in uncharted territory as far as the constitutional republic goes it's not what it appears you know it's 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 something else and people say well but life goes on you know people have their lives their families their children and so forth and, and their careers to get on with and we don't have time to deal with it but you know the more you think about it and you step back you think well, yeah but something's not right i mean it's it has to be a mutation unless you accept the warren report as a final solution and there are many people that you can debate with online and you can tell that they're coming at this issue from the angle of, 
you know, for you to to criticize it or to uh, to generate suspicion based on faults that you find is 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 sort of unpatriotic because you're, you're all you're doing is sowing mistrust in institutions. But you know, it's it's a it's a catch twenty two. I mean, if that if that explanation given to the public was actually a whitewash, which I believe it was, then things are not the way they're supposed to be, you know, so it goes, it goes back and forth. And, uh, and so that's kind of, I guess, how I've rationalized getting involved. But in terms of the encounter, in terms of the article that I wrote, you know, we rationalize things as human beings. And I had already decided not to take anything personal about that episode. You know, whatever this man's idiosyncrasies were, it wasn't due to me. But then, you know, fast forward 14 years, it's 2013. And then it, there's a new dimension. It's like, oh, not only should I not have taken it personally that it was so difficult to, you know, to please him and, and to work there. But, um, but, but he was that way because of, because of that experience of working at the Warren Commission. And is that, is that good? Yeah. I was just going to mention, we should uh, talk about Howard and, and uh, who he was and that background first, maybe for people who haven't written the article yet. We're going to make a link to the article so people can read it, right? Yeah. Okay. Great. Um, yeah. He. Um, he I, I mean, I, again, I don't have an encyclopedic knowledge, but I understand that he was the Department of Justice's liaison to the Warren Commission. And James Diogenio, in, in your last podcast with him, explains quite, quite at length. Um, yeah, he's, he was an assistant counsel in the Warren Commission, Howard yeah. Willens. Yeah, he was one of the, you know, so he was a very important person on the legal staff. And I think on the whole, the legal staff was really quite young. I mean, he must have been about 30 years old, but there were younger uh, among them. And so he, because of their time constraints, they had to wrap everything up, you know, by September 64. He had to do a sort of a rush job. And, um, you know, and then he came out, obviously, in 2013 with his, you know, History Will Prove Us Right book, which also looks, I'm sorry to say, very sort of slapdash to me. I, I don't, you know, it, it, is, it is written sort of in the same style as his books about Micronesia in the sense that there's a first-person aspect to it, but it's much more first-person. It's very self-legitimizing, and I, and I didn't... Um, you know, I, I, it was more for me, the Warren commission is shrouded in sort of fear and sadness. You know, it's, it's, it's one of those episodes where, you know, the more you look at it, you say, how could this have happened? How could they have explained all these things this way? And how could it then have evolved into a historical episode where people who defend the official version say in response to some criticism, don't you think it's implausible that, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald got to the intersection of 10th and Patton in that amount of time or whatever it is, invariably the answer is, yeah, but he could have if it's always possible. And that's why it doesn't really, it doesn't read like a legal uh, uh, opinion. Uh, and, and, and Howard Willens as an experienced attorney knows that it doesn't read like a legal opinion. It reads like a sort of, you know, coherent narrative for public consumption. In other words, here's a story that holds together in terms of, you know, we've made it hold together, but it has so many holes in it now. And it really, it should have been discredited a long time ago, but, um, but it, but it somehow still has this tremendous staying power, even in light of, you know, 
subsequent congressional investigation that always gets overridden by the Warren Commission report and so forth. So, uh, so for me, it's you know that that sadness and and sort of climate of fear from way back then that the Warren Commission operated in, and that I believe in the '70s when investigations were taking place by the Church Committee and the HSCA, and you know you had the murder of uh, the murders of uh, uh, CIA assets like like Johnny Roselli and Sam Giancana, the, the sort of the, these mafia guys. There was still you know, this climate of fear. And like I said, there are consequences for, you know, go, going going too far. And I don't know how, but the Warren Commission just basically managed to be the sort of, you know, the 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 the, the standard, the industry standard for, for, for JFK discussions of the JFK assassination. And I, uh, I, I mean, I just ended up associating the, the experience that I had with, with that sort of sadness that that shrouds the the Warren Commission. Um, you know, you you tend to block these things out of your of your memory. You know, your your personal biography is like, well, I I don't you know I can leave that behind. But I mean, I I, I it's it's difficult to 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 rationalize why I didn't take more of an interest in it earlier, except to say that I didn't grow up in the United States. I grew up in the UK, and I wasn't taught U.S. history. Um, you know, in England, they teach the English Civil War, not the American Civil War. And uh, um, I suppose by the time I got back to the States, I was, you know, going about to enter college. And in, in college and university, I, I did a like a Cold War degree. My family was very conservative and sort of Republican, you know, Reagan, Thatcher. And so, you know, spooks or intelligence operatives became you know, a fact of life. They, they, they're just, they're, they're, you know, in the vanguard of this, of this fight. Um, and I, you know, I was, I was so kind of indoctrinated in that, that I didn't even really notice the Cold War ending in, in sort of the mid to late 1980s. Um, and so, you know, I, I studied this, 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 air, this, period of history and this area of the world, the Soviet bloc, and in 1988, actually visited the Soviet Union. It still went by that name. It was a university trip between between undergraduate and graduate. And I was about to enter this master's program in Russian and East European studies, hugely fascinating. But of course, the Cold War is actually already, already over. I mean, Bernie Sanders went on honeymoon the, in the Soviet Union when I was there. I mean, I didn't know at the time, but turned out he did, you know, things were opening up, there were tr tremendous changes. And then I end up with this Cold War degree at the beginning of 1991. And by the end of that year, there was no more Soviet bloc, it was all gone. And um, I, um, uh, you know, I ended up having to get a, a job in the private sector, uh, on the strength of my Russian language ability, which I'd gotten from school. And so well into the 1990s, I was you know, I was still before I went to law school, which is like a something you do because you know the, the previous thing didn't work out. I mean, at least in my case. And uh, and I was in law school while the ARRB was was in session, and uh, and I was I was kind of oblivious to that too. So you know, our backgrounds I think really do you know affect the way we look at at um, at historical events. And and as I've gotten older. 
I just, you know, the significance of the of the assassination of President Kennedy has just loomed larger and larger. And as I as I said, I mean, it isn't any more tragic from a human perspective than the assassinations of of Martin Luther King, Robert Kennedy, or others. It's it's because it has this constitutional um, and legal, therefore legal implication. And um, and even this far down the road, I, it, it, something has to give. Something has to give. And um, and I, I guess I just feel I have to. You have to believe in something. So I guess I'm hopeful that it will. Uh, there's tremendous efforts going on by some some uh, people who are active in this, like the Mary Farrell Foundation. I think it's you know we we we, we have to keep pushing. But at any rate, it's it's been it's been uh, fascinating so far to. Uh, read about all this right just the fact that they keep pushing it back you mentioned in 2017 that trump was going to release documents and then they were held back and they're held back and now biden with covid and and you make mention in the article that newscaster judge uh, andrew napolitano right on, right and yeah. that uh, he said uh, if you saw what i saw you will we'll never be releasing these yeah that, that i mean i think you would agree that is a very very strange answer to expect people to you know to just accept you know it's like uh, yeah you don't want to know so move on well of course we want to know i mean no nobody actually really knows what happened you know and this is what you always end up getting into it with with defenders of the warren report well, said, if i can interrupt you for a moment the, the problem here is that some people know what happened there is you know if if you believe that there is a report that says what happened, and uh, Trump saw it, and he knows that he's not allowed to release that. So somewhere in the CIA, they have an exact documents of what happened, and the Justice Department. You you have to assume that. Well, I mean, I I would like to believe that there is something there that will finally basically destroy the 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 prevailing official narrative that has that has survived for for nearly 60 years i'm not sure that there is anything there that is going to specifically detail uh, yeah but what i'm getting at is that they will never release that they might never release that or destroy that record then you know the way the secret surface uh destroyed records but um at some point, I think you made uh, alluded to it that uh, we can know what's going on, but not for you people, right? The old line: "It's a big club, but you're not in it." And right. um, um, yeah, I, I think that's I think that's it's definitely a big part of it, right? Um, but I, I think that I mean, my sense is that as far as the destruction, and we know that there's been destruction, Doctor. You mentioned the Secret Service; that's very true. But it's generally accepted that. Lots of files that were in the control of James Angleton were destroyed probably by him back in the days when everything was printed out and had like carbon copies. Bill Harvey, uh, apparently also, um, you know, a lot of stuff destroyed. So what I and, and what's mysterious and, and it's very interesting to me, if you look, you know, if, if you read the work of of Jefferson Morley and, and John Newman going back to the 1990s when they they tracked down this um, retired CIA officer who had, who had worked in, uh, in, in, Ang on Angleton's uh, counterintelligence staff. I think she was in the office of security. I, I, you know, my memory is, 
is is faulty. But um, Jane Roman, and they got her to admit, okay, yes, I signed off on this cable that I must have known at the time was false. And, and this began this kind of odyssey. And at, at the, where things are now, um, Jefferson Morley's position, which he which he laid out at that press conference in December, which was only days before the deadline that Biden faced to release the remaining documents, is that there are documents that were sh- that should have been included in the collection in the 1990s. In other words, the ARB, its work isn't finished. You know, they always give this thing four years, which is clearly not enough. And the law is still alive. So the ARB's work isn't finished because they didn't manage to assert jurisdiction over certain files that should have been included in the collection in, you know, redacted form or whatever. And they're still in the question, well, how does anyone know that they're still there then? Because if they're not, you know, in the collection, how do we know the CIA hasn't destroyed them? My sense, and I don't know, and investigative journalists have their own sources. My sense is that the way bureaucracy is involved, the CIA is a massive bureaucracy now. And to destroy documents would not just be a matter of, you know, Angleton going into a filing cabinet or maybe rounding up every copy and putting them into an incinerator. You know, these days, more than one person would know. And so there is a kind of collective bureaucratic element involved. Now, I, I mean, I don't know, obviously, what's there and I don't know what's under the redactions. There's obviously something there. And the only question is whether it's deeply embarrassing or solidly incriminating. And for those of us who believe that there was a conspiracy um, it, within the government, uh, the question is, okay, would there have been official documents of that in the first place, or would this all have been handled, you know, in another way? And so what all they were really destroying was uh, sort of documents that contain code names of operations that involved Oswald, for example, uh, anti-Castro Cuban exiles and so on and so and the mafia and so forth. Do we want to wipe all those out? So the idea that, you know, Mary Farrell Foundation could focus on 44 documents pertaining to a specific CIA officer who was involved in an operation that implicated the accused assassin. That's a very, I think, a very interesting and scholarly way to do it. It's not necessarily going to uncover the culprits but it is definitely going to shift the official narrative and will bring all the stellar research that these that these writers and these authors have done into vindication or respectability which is where they belong i mean if you read uh, just to give an example so uh, peter dale scott um i guess he's your fellow canadian i mean he's done some really amazing work now he is a tenured professor and he's written these these extraordinary books where he says, I don't want to focus on conspiracy. I want to focus on something he calls deep politics. And what he does is he he he, he writes almost sociologies. In other words, they basically lay out aspects of the American system, which because of people's subconscious or, or subliminal understanding of the way things are supposed to operate, sort of inexorably lead to some you know, hor- horrible episode like the assassination of the president. Uh, and actually, I think James Eugenio's books are almost sociological too, in the sense that you see in Destiny Betrayed a huge network of people converging on the Jim Garrison investigation to undermine it. And I mean, it's impossible to believe that there was some central, you know, core of conspirators that were directing them. 
rather they they sensed uh, advantage they they got the backing that they needed and they set about doing him in and of course he was he was done in he was discredited so I mean, I can't help but think that eventually, because you know humanity moves on, that will all be turned on its head, and the and and the people who have done the serious research uh, and writing will be vindicated. Um, and and maybe I'm maybe I'm, I'm I'm pie in the sky, and I don't know that we'll ever know, you know, whether Arminio Diaz and Eladio del Valle were were uh, firing rifles in Dealey Plaza on November twenty second. But we will at least be able to depart from this, you know, sort of now cliched idea of the sort of lone nut who is disaffected and a real loser. And and therefore, he must have killed the president. I mean, that is the reasoning of, of some of these um, sort of establishment books. Um, and so uh, so I think that's that's kind of more how I feel about it. I don't you know, I don't know what to expect from the files. And the, and the point is often brought up about whether we could reasonably expect anything from them because wouldn't they have destroyed um, wouldn't they have destroyed any evidence and yeah they, they, I'm sure they did destroy a lot I'm sure they did but if there's something left there then we need to we need to go for it and we kind of need to go for it now um, I think I mean I think we're I mean I think there are a lot of problems in America at the moment I think there's a lot of strange things going on. You know, there's a lot of mistrust. There's a lot of polarization, and you know, it could be that the the JFK issue is the only thing that both sides of the aisle can actually agree on, um, because the Republicans will go after you know the FBI's um, influence on Twitter. They're going to go after January 6. You know, was there any kind of I don't know deep state involvement in that, and uh, and and the origins of COVID and so forth. But JFK is is this, I think it's this issue that that everyone can just accept fairly calmly needs to be, something needs to be done about it. Um, and we'll see how much power the CIA and the FBI have in, in, in continuing to try to keep it, keep it concealed. Um, so that, that's kind of my, my take on them. Well, the there's fire. a lot of money with them as well, you know, to, to keep up. Uh, you know, propagating propaganda, you know, just to keep pumping it out that go back to the Warren Commission. And uh, what your article deals with is that uh, you worked with a member of the Warren Commission and, um, you know, his insight or stubbornness to stick to the, the lone assassin, you know, in spite of what uh, you would say as he him being a very bright lawyer, you'd think he would know better or be have more curiosity. Yeah. And, and, and also, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to be, you know, a uh, moralistic in the sense that I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not a saint and I'm not a, I'm not a hero, but I think, you know, there's a level of conscience that you know, most of us, I guess, would take for granted. I mean, I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to have any secret concerning something like that. I wouldn't want to carry it along. And I can't imagine it. And I, I, I mentioned his colleague, David Slauson, who was on the other end of the line from James Angleton in a veiled threat over the phone. Well, I mean, you know, is there any reason now to, to worry about that? The, the intelligence community, community can obviously be very intimidating and say, you know, there are much bigger things at stake here. You have a duty to keep this, you know, 
to keep this secret. Well, now in 2023, I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, there, there are things that you know the British government put keep, keep secret for a hundred years, but I, I just, you know, there's also a sense that I guess in Britain, intelligence history as a field of writing and study is is sort of more, I don't know. I guess it seems more reliable or predictable than it does in the States. And, you know, at the core of that is this, this shroud of, of, of secrecy that, that still hangs over the, over the assassination of, of one of our heads of state. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't understand, I don't understand that if they, if they, if they do know something, you know, I mean, I suppose once you're in your nineties, you've kind of earned a right not to be, you know, harassed by people. In fact, I wrote an email to Peter Dale Scott, a contemporary of Howard Willens last year, and he never answered it. And I, you know, it's fine. I mean, he's earned the right not to answer emails from strangers, but it was just about something I'd read in one of his books, but I can't understand it. And you bring up, uh, you brought up president Trump and Andrew Napolitano. Um, that, that means that Trump saw something and he's okay with, you know, carrying on and playing golf in Mar-a-Lago and making these, you know, stops and speeches. and Is he okay? He's okay as long as he doesn't discuss it over the phone or... Said, <laughs> well, right? He, that's right. And he said, I can't discuss this over the phone, but I'm happy to tell you in person. Well, I, you know, apparently um, Napolitano hasn't followed up on that. So I don't know what that says about him. I mean, it seems to me to be, wow, that is really... You know that is from something where he actually saw something that he thought was. And remember, as a lot of people now believe, and I actually believe that the anonymous source that Tucker Carlson referred to was actually Trump. So, because if you look at the if you look at the language, it really does sort of sound. The last sentence is, "It's all fake." Well, I mean, who uses the word "fake" more in contemporary politics than than Donald Trump? I mean, it's 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 a constant thing. Everything's fake. So. And and the way that Carlson referred to him, it was as we talked to someone who was knowledgeable about this and had per, a personal, you know, uh, had seen these these documents and said yes. It was asked if if the CIA was involved, and his answer was yes. I believe they were involved. Well, I mean that that indicates that he saw something really bad, but he only believed that they were involved. You know, he, did, he, he couldn't say for sure. There are certain things, and this is why I think the CIA is probably controlling documents and the FBI to some extent, that it's possible because unless they have a, if, unless they have a, like a, a permanent detail of bureaucrats who are in charge of those files and know them intimately, right? We're talking three generations, so with 60 years later, the researchers and the authors and all these scholarly people who've written these incredible books, they would maybe be able to make more sense of them than the CIA can. I'm only speculating, but that might be part of their fear. In other words, my God, if we let it into that community, they'll know exactly what, what this refers to, what this yeah. code name is, what that is. So it's a very peculiar situation. And I just think that the, you know, at this point, the so-called conspiracy theorists are, are the sane ones. Because they're they have inquiring minds, they they're actually trying to to get closer and closer to the truth, uh, and and some terrible secret, and the people covering it up. I mean, I I have no idea who they are. I mean, I have no idea who these faceless people were that told Mike Pompeo in 2017 we can't possibly release this, and then and then Pompeo goes to Trump and says the same thing. 
who are these faceless people? And then it happens again in 2018, again in 2021, again in 2022. So four times in the space of a little more than five years, two presidents have have kicked the can down the road. And I, I mean, I, I, I don't know what to make of it. I mean, I really don't. I, I'm more of a follower, I have to say, than 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 a leader in this. I, and I'd like, you know, if I were to make a contribution to the literature, in terms of writing my own book. I would probably write something about, um, you know, what Judge Tunheim referred to in that press conference in December, which is the Belarus government. The Belarusian government is still holding on to a stack of documents they had agreed to turn over to the Assassination Records Review Board in the 1990s and then reneged at the last minute. And if funny enough, the president at that time of Belarus is still the president today. I don't know whether it's possible to reason with him in the context of the war next door, but I would probably do something like that. I mean, I would. I have Russian language. I've been around there. I could probably look, is there any way to see any of this, to get a better, an even better idea of the personality of the accused assassin Oswald, who I don't think, um, I don't think he shot anybody on the day of the assassination, but, um, you know, that is a view that, you know, even a lot of respected, uh, distinguished researchers say, well, he probably killed Tippett, you know. I mean, I just... No, I, just, I, I don't like it when they say probably, you know, after yeah, all this time. That. Yeah. Well, look, yeah. let's get just a little bit into your article and we'll try to uh, intrigue people to read it and we'll make the link to it. Uh, do you want to just go into how you uh, met Howard Willens and, and, and what your observations were of his personality? I mean, I mentioned earlier in your article you you said he could be uh hard to work for but uh yeah i mean essentially i would i i'd i'd gotten the news a little earlier that you know that i'd pass the dc bar and i was at that point i basically had had decided that i wasn't going to go and you know chase after an ivy tower uh, ivory tower law firm job and i was due to go on a a mission to the Caucasus on behalf of this uh, sort of independent, ultimately kind of maverick, I have to say, uh, British human rights organization to, to the Caucasus, to Armenia and Georgia. And I needed to, um, I needed a, uh, some, something to do for a few months, a job. And, um, you know, that there's, uh, unlike most of the legal temp jobs that you get in, um, in Washington, which are basically, you know, they, they take a, they take a barred attorney and put him in front of a computer in a cubicle and they and they go through PDFs. And that's that's basically what they do. This was different. This was to assist a, you know, a senior attorney, as I was told, and his wife who were writing a book. It turned into two volumes uh, on this subject. And so I thought, OK, well, that sounds better. I get to go to someone's house instead of, you know, uh, putting on the um, the suit and tie and, and being uncomfortable in an office. So I, I was. I was happy about that. Um, but I was, I was told that, you know, he could be difficult. And of course, later on when the books were published and I could see all the research assistants, I think there were eight. Um, I thought, gee, I might've, <laughs> I might've lasted longer than anybody, but I don't know. I was only there for a couple of months and, um, you know, I, he obviously is, was a perfectionist. I mean, this is someone very fastidious and he wanted to get, make sure everything was just so. But I, um, I, uh, I, I, I didn't seem to be able to to please him, 
and uh, and I I was extremely um, sort of depressed about it. I thought, my God, I'm really you know trying here. I moved back and forth to the Library of Congress, and I pretty much got everything nailed down. And then right at the end, he sort of relaxed a bit. You know, I think I had a beer with him even, and um, and I thought, well, it was all just it was all just his you know um, kind of fastidious nitpicking nature. It was wasn't anything else. And I moved on and I went on and I, I, I didn't see him again uh, or his wife. Um, and, um, and I, I worked a, a series of, um, of different jobs in different countries. Uh, and I ended up in, in Istanbul working for a Turkish uh, law firm, just a commercial law firm, but quite a big one by their standards, like a, like a hundred attorneys. And, and that was when I really, I, I don't know why, but it was 2010, I, I started to become this kind of JFK internet enthusiast, and I saw the, the Zapruder film. And I didn't, I didn't really think about, um, about Howard Willens, and I didn't, know, I didn't know until I started to read deeply who anyone but the Warren Commission members were. And, and of course, I'd heard of Arlen Specter, you know, the infamous single bullet theory guy, but I didn't know, I couldn't put any names to any faces of any... Uh, I, did, I didn't know the names or the identities of the of the legal counsel or the staff. And so when I when I saw him, you know, online promoting his book, and I think he did kind of a mini tour to promote his book and also the the amazing achievements of the Warren Commission. And I believe there were a total of six people. So there was him, David Slauson, and Bert Griffin, who I think was a retired judge. And then I think there were three members of the non-legal staff. And I, even today, I, I couldn't tell you their names. And they were in this kind of panel at Southern Methodist University. And he got up first to speak. And he gave this kind of speech for about an hour, I think it was, about all the things they did. And, you know, they interviewed over 500 witnesses and, you know, came to the conclusion. And, of course, they had to deal with the issue of conspiracy, but they successfully, you know, uh, debunked that there was no no credible evidence of a conspiracy and so forth and it was a very for me to watch it was it was really you know i had seen nothing of this man for 14 years i mean he just was not part of my life but it all came flooding back and i began to rationalize you know what i had experienced in his company for two months and then him as a as a proponent of the of the warren report i thought wow i mean you know you rationalize these things in in your own individual way. But to me, I, for all I know, he'd always been the way he was. I mean, you know, I, I don't know, but I thought, you know, perhaps this was it. because in 1999, when I went to look for him, I mean, it was only a year after the ARRB wrapped up its work and it was very much in the air. And in fact, Howard Willens had appeared and he writes in his book um, that he had appeared in front of Congress. It was either right after, or right before Oliver Stone, so Oliver Stone appeared and spoke before Congress and talk about, you know, an achievement uh, in, in filmmaking. I mean, how could he have envisioned that his film, a narrative film, would 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 produce federal legislation? So it was really something. And the congressmen who were up there on the questioning him, they were, I thought, relatively nice to him on the whole. But Howard Willens had to get up and I think he came later and his his um, account of the incident is very derisory in his book. I mean, he, he makes fun of, um, of, uh, of Oliver Stone in a kind of a backhanded way. Um, and, you know, 
but by this point, I, you know, I was familiar with the Micronesian works. I mean, I had, uh, you know, copies of them and I, and I knew the, you know, the basics of it. Of course, I, then I went back into those and, and, and I started to read those again. And I read them in the light of his having been a former Warren Commission counsel uh, when he, when he was active in the events described in those books. So he became active in the 70s, in the early 70s. I think his wife in the mid-70s. Um, and so his account, I think, is colored by, you know, because people's accounts of things are colored by their by their previous experiences. And so um, it just it just was a it was a real eye opener. And I have to say that, you know, when I when I wrote the article and, and submitted it to Kennedy's and King, you know, there was a selfish motive there. I mean, not material selfish, but, you know, you kind of need to write these things out sometimes. And, and in order to sort of purge something, it's like, I, I need, I need to convey this and I need to make sense of it. And I just think it's, one of the um, one of the people representing Mary Farrell made the point recently in a podcast that so Larry Schnapp he said you know we're running out of time here I mean people are are dying who were actually witnesses or experienced the events at the time and uh, and I suppose that that also entered entered into it as well it's like look you know we're we're running out of time at least in terms of people who are who are still who are still around and can and can talk about it. Um, I'm not sure, actually, that everything hinges on that, but in terms of of getting a better, a, a, you know, more justice for history than we have, I'm not sure that depends on who's who's alive. But I thought it was just a very, you know, the whole experience was very thought provoking, and I would say seminal for me uh, in thinking about the assassination because you know it was a, per I mean, it was a personal encounter in the sense that it has something to do with my own sort of personal way of thinking about and rationalizing the the assassination and the way that it was that it's been treated in in history uh so that's that's i guess the significance of the article i mean it really was it really is a personal you know episode for me um and uh i let people draw their own conclusions about howard willens i'm sure there are many people who know him a lot better than i do when i was at the Catholic conference in uh, november uh, the uh, Citizens Against Political Assassinations in Dallas. Uh, the makers of a documentary that is in production now called uh, Four Died Trying, they showed this incredible trailer. It went on for a long time, and it, you know, it still had the watermarks on a lot of their footage, but it looks like it's going to be very, very interesting. And it's about the four assassinations that Kennedys and King cover in the 60s. But in there, among all the interviewees, there he appeared again, um, Howard Willens, in a very brief slot and looking very, you know, impatient and resistant to <laughs> to questioning about the about the subject. So you know, it's it's popped up a bit. But I just needed, you know, I I guess I felt a need to write it, and I'm glad that um, that Jim DiEugenio liked it. Uh, I'm a huge fan of his writing, so I I was pleased that he that he accepted it. And I might just do a plug as well. He mentioned Jerry Simone, who I think published an article right around the same time. That's also fascinating. It's all about Mexico. Um, and, um, yeah, so. Good. Okay. Well, uh, I'll urge everyone to 
go through your article because uh, we don't have to read it word for word here right now, but it's basically uh, you're detailing your time uh, with uh, Howard, and I think that because his book dealing on the legal aspects of um, the Marianas Islands and things like that and how he was representing the government and uh, they they wanted to take some back and well go through the article yourself and uh, and and you'll see that so um very good yeah well and uh, I, I i might also say i mean those those histories are are obviously now essential histories for anyone studying that subject so they're the kind of books that university libraries get and put on the shelf and if you're studying international law in micronesia the 20th century whatever it is that you're going to come across those books now i as I said in the article, they're definitely authorized histories. They definitely have a kind of a, a formalistic um, feel to them. But I ask you also have to say that it's obvious that the authors uh, have a lot of, um, you know, sentiment. Uh, or they had a lot of sentimentality for all the people that they describe. Um, all the people that they met there who were instrumental natives of the Marianas uh, who became, you know, uh, very deeply involved in the in the negotiations, and you know it 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 may seem sort of a dry account in a way, but it's still quite detailed. And so I guess I would I would encourage if anyone's I, I mean I'm not sure how much insight they really give into the into the personality of of uh, of Howard P. Willens, Esquire, former legal counsel to the Warren Commission, but but they do I guess they would you know they would flesh out what I say in the article, because I do discuss what those books are about. Okay, very good. All right, before we wrap up, is there anything you wanted to bring up, uh, even on a different topic? Uh, or we've covered this? I, it's it's very, I mean, it's, it's, it's human nature to speculate based on facts. And of course, I do find it all all very fascinating and interesting. Um, and um, uh, among the guests that you've had, um, the many guests that you've had who have this incredible knowledge of aspects of the assassination, I just want to, uh, one quick plug for someone who I think is, I think he's been unfairly maligned by some because there is so much speculative. But I think that that John Armstrong will be in some way vindicated in some essential way. Because, of, I mean, I, when I met Jim Eugenio in Dallas, I asked him about that. I said, I, I guess you couldn't put it in your documentary. He said, no. He said, but I'm one of the, I, he said, I'm the only person I know who's read the entire book. You know, that's like a thousand page book cover to cover. And I said, well, now you've met another one because I have two. And now it's, it's dismissed by a lot of people because it is so, it, it does speculate very much. It draws conclusions based on on facts and explains how this could have been, you know, how this could have been the case because, 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 but there are enough instances and enough anomalies that he points out to where I can't believe that there were not, not only among all the instances of people who were seen or heard identifying themselves as, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald here or there, not only were there were there a lot of people who bore a passing resemblance to him and were uh, for some future purpose were were uh, posing as him. I believe among all those, there were two who actually were going by that identity as a matter of official record. 
uh, and and in fact, you can point to you can you can point to instances like, for example, when J. Edgar Hoover said someone is using Oswald's birth certificate, and this was when Oswald was supposed to be in the Soviet Union. Uh, there is Marita Lorenz's testimony to the House Select Committee, where she said under oath, she said, I, I don't have to be here. There's nothing in this for me. You're asking me and I'm telling you I met this guy in the Florida Everglades. And then, of course, she's pressured. You know, you're under oath, you're under oath. And eventually she has to recant because her attorney warns her. So I, I just wanted to point that out. I find the, the scenario uh, of Harvey and Lee to be very haunting and very, you know, very resonant. And I don't want to say that it is the absolute truth, but I just want to, I guess I would thank you, um, Len, for, for having had him on Black Op Radio uh, so often, because I think he's I, absolutely fascinating. And I think he's, the stuff he's done for research and his collection at Baylor University, I mean, that is a huge contribution, no matter what anybody uh, thinks about his ultimate thesis. So that's, I guess that's just one thing I wanted to add. Well, I have some good news for you. Okay. John has some new information, and uh, he wanted me to come there in person. So I'm going to his home in uh, March this year, and I'm going to bring a camera, and uh, there's going to be a, a good, well, it's about four and a half hours so far of uh, preliminary work that we were scoping out. So I've talked to him on the phone quite a bit about it, and uh, yeah, I'm flying out to see him in Hawaii. Wow, well, that's very enviable. I thought he lived in Tulsa, Oklahoma, but Hawaii is probably a lot nicer. A long that's, time ago, yeah. yeah he also that, that is that is that is that is great. I would love to be. And in fact, you know, one of my you know serious hobbies is is documentary filmmaking, and I always thought, wouldn't it be amazing to do a documentary? of Harvey and Lee. I mean, you know, even if it's, even if there's so much of it is, is speculative, it's still so interesting. And so I, um, so I'm envious of you. I, I, I wish you all the luck in the world with that and, and more power to, uh, to him as well. Well, like you, you mentioned, some people don't like him. And when you, when you first get the premise of uh, the, the two kids, you know, almost from birth there or whatever, right? elementary school anyway um you know but the thing is uh he's he's been very nice to me about he says look just anytime you find anything wrong show me where i'm wrong show me when i'm error i don't want to go on and so he's just so open to accepting that there could be a fault with something and i mentioned that the people and um uh, maybe i should make this plea if you have any questions for john uh email them in to me before uh before the end of March, and I'll take them with me and have him address them. But um, he, he's more open. And Jim DiEugenio was one of the first people that said that, that, you know, he read his whole book. He doesn't subscribe to the final conclusion. But if you change Harvey and Lee to Harvey and Imposter, then the whole, you know, book is, is so valuable. Yeah. So, yeah. And, um, and, and 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 in fact, the the scenario whereby it goes back into childhood, and uh, I mean, his website is also excellent. And in fact, it revises many of the things in the book. I mean, some key aspects. But the speculation that the the OSS, the CIA's predecessor, did enact a program to bring children uh, who are perhaps orphaned or anyway displaced by the war to the United States, and they were from Eastern Europe and all that. You know, it does seem 
very bizarre. And that's why people don't want to, you know, that's why people don't want to entertain it too seriously. So come on, that's way too far fetched. But actually, if you think about it, so when he analogizes it with the Conan Molody, uh, Gordon Lonsdale uh, plot of this of the Soviets, this was a very long term plot. And at the height of the Cold War, these these were you know spies. They were strange people. I mean, some of them were obviously kind of sick, but you know they they were in a constant game of one-upmanship with the Soviets and the KGB over these insane plots. And you look at someone like James Angleton, look at his face and the way it developed, you know, over the decades. I mean, this is a guy that was very, very strange. And if he had knowledge of some long-term uh, uh, project or operation that they were developing for some undisclosed purpose, it's very possible that that operation itself became the, the impetus for the cover-up or one of the one of the 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 motives for the for the massive cover up that ensued uh, after the assassination because you know they they thought up some bizarre scheme for, for one and I think the use of doppelgangers in in security is an accepted reality I mean most U.S. presidents have doubles I think it would have been very different difficult to find one for Trump. But, you know, because of the way he appears, but but for most other people, I mean, I think for all it's accepted. Well, why wouldn't you also use doppelgangers for intelligence purposes? I mean, it seems perfectly logical. So even though it's bizarre and, of course, you know, the the the, the mother um, you know, also being an imposter. I mean, this is a very, very elaborate plot, but I wouldn't put it totally past people like Alan Dulles to come up with something like this early on. Because, I mean, and, and there's some people have written online that he had a penchant, he had an affinity, Dulles, for doppelgangers and the use of doubles. And so you combine all these things and you say, actually, it could have happened. Of course, ultimately, it's speculative and people are free to, to accept or dismiss that thesis. But I don't think you can really deny the value of his research. It's just too much. And it's too, it's, you know, it, it's very thought provoking. So. So anyway, I, I good. We'll leave it at thought provoking. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Great. Very nice to talk to you, Len. Thank you very much for having me on. Thank you so much uh, for uh, taking time tonight, and also thank you for your good article, interesting personal counter with the Warren Commission, and um, yeah, Howard Willens, uh, one of these people that uh, dug in and said that the Warren Commission had it right, and. Yep. Uh, Although, after uh, you knew how smart he was and diligent worker, he should have known better. So, yeah. I think so, yeah. yeah. All right. Thank you very much, Chad. Thank you, Len. All right. Good to talk. Okay. Bye-bye.